0: district officials consider whether, when, and how to reopen schools amid the pandemic, negotiations with teachers unions have been key to their deliberations. In Chicago, the mere threat of a strike appears to have been enough to lead the district to abandon plans for in-person learning. And that same pattern may be unfolding in New York City, where the United Federation of Teachers has said that it may authorize a strike vote if it can't reach agreement with the district on health and safety protections. Coming off a series of successful strikes in 2018 and 2019, teacher unions seem to be negotiating from a position of strength. And that's perhaps surprising, given that the Supreme Court struck them a major blow with its 2018 Janus decision, barring public sector unions from collecting fees from non-members. What accounts for teacher unions' staying power, and will it persist beyond the pandemic? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Daniel DeSalvo. Dan is a professor of political science at the City College of New York and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Along with Michael Hartney of Boston College, he's the author of Teachers' Unions in a Post-Janus World, which appeared in the summer 2020 issue of the journal and is available online at educationnext.org. Dan, welcome to the Ednext Podcast.
1: My pleasure to be with you, Marty.
0: So you have a front row seat to the debate over reopening schools for in-person instruction in New York. What's the latest and what role is the union playing?
1: Well, the union's playing a very important role. New York City is the really the only large school district in the nation that's considering returning to in-person instruction. So it's seen as a major test case for how schools can uh, cope with the pandemic and potentially offer in-person instruction. That said, it's been a highly contested decision by the the UFT, the United Federation of Teachers, led by Michael Mulgrew, who about a month ago threatened a potential strike or walkout. And deliberations have come recently to a head in the last two days, um, which is to say the union's executive board was supposed to have met last night, and then the district council, which is representatives from all the schools around the city union representatives, is supposed to meet today. Um, technically to deliberate on whether to authorize uh, the union leadership to call a strike. But lots of reports, lots of confusing back and forth here between uh, the union leadership and the mayor, the mayor making statements yesterday, saying he didn't think a strike was coming. Uh, The language of the resolutions being debated at these meetings, still quite unclear. So there's even just a few days before school is technically supposed to start on September 10th in new york city there's lots of confusion about what will happen and what the teachers union will actually do
0: and i should say that we're recording this on tuesday september 1st that meeting of the executive committee that you referenced occurred last night and the meeting of the district assembly is scheduled for later today a strike in new york city would be a big deal it's the nation's largest school district as you said an important test case for instruction in the COVID-19 era. And it would be the first teacher strike in New York City since 1975, almost half a century. You think it will happen?
1: Well, uh, it's very hard to predict at this point. There's so many conflicting signals going back and forth. I would say a couple of things that in, in some respects, the u- union leadership probably does not want a strike under uh, New York's Taylor Law, which governs public sector labor relations, it pu- strikes by teachers are illegal, which distinguishes New York from uh, Illinois, where, we, as you mentioned, uh, Chicago has recently had a series of strikes and threatened strikes. So under certain uh, conditions in Chicago and, and elsewhere in the United States, teacher strikes can be legal. Uh, in New York, they're not. And that means that uh, teachers who went on strike or a you know, concerted job action, um, such as a sick out or slowdown, something like that, could potentially uh, have their pay uh, withheld. So that would be something going against the teachers themselves. Union leadership could be, the union itself could be fined. Union leadership could even be potentially jailed. So there are some stiff penalties in New York for striking. And that makes this a really high stakes decision. And the reason we haven't had a strike in New York City teachers in 45 years is largely because of these provisions of the Taylor Law.
0: That all makes sense. And it uh, would be interesting to see, I think, whether politicians would follow through on enforcing any of those penalties, which might end up depending to some extent on how the public comes to view any strike should it occur. Is that is that right?
1: Yeah, I think that's the big question that neither you could say, uh, management or labor in in this matter, really has a clear sense of where the public is coming down on this. Um, And that's going to be one of the biggest uh, roadblocks. As union leaders have often said in the past, the only um, illegal strike is an unsuccessful one. So in that respect, the question is really how parents um, and public opinion would react to a strike. Are they going to see this as... um, the teachers are taking steps that are completely legitimate to protect uh, the health and safety of children and the health and safety of themselves, given that uh, many K-12 teachers in New York and elsewhere are over 50 and in a higher COVID risk category, or are they gonna see this as Uh, Many other essential workers have been uh, asked to and forced back to work, and they have gone without complaint or without striking. And in fact, in New York City, many of the parents most in need of sending their children back to school are uh, are, are themselves essential workers. And are they going to side with management and say, we really need to open the schools and we need to be having our kids go? Um, I think there's a great deal of uncertainty about where uh, public opinion is on this issue.
0: And however this process ultimately plays out in New York City, the role the UFT is playing there, in addition to the role that unions have played nationwide in district after district as they've made these decisions, would seem to illustrate the subtitle of your recent article in Education Next, which read: Defying predictions, unions still hold major clout. The predictions you're referencing there stemmed from the Supreme Court's decision in the Janus case. Can you remind listeners what that decision did?
1: That decision um, questioned whether agency fees or what the unions call fair share fees, which meant uh, under existing law, no one in public and labor relations could be forced to become a union member, but non-members could still be forced to pay fees to the union as Um, for acting as their agent in collective bargaining to negotiate over pay, work rules, and benefits. Now, the decision itself struck down laws in 22 states, um, which allowed for these agency fees to be charged to non-members. The underlying rationale was that the public sector is different than private sector unions, in part because it's governed by state rather than national law, and in part because the decision public sector unions were seen as inherently political entities, and that by charging these fees was, in a sense, com- compelling speech by those people who didn't want to be members. The impact of the decision for both uh, opponents, you could say, or critics of uh, public sector unions, including teachers' unions, and the unions themselves was uh, everyone saw this as going to be something that was going to devastate union finances um, and then weaken them, Politically, right and the unions would end up with fewer members less money and that would translate into less political power Um, so that uh, We argue in the article um, Has not happened to date and we can talk more about some of the reasons why that's the case
0: Yes, so just to lay out the logic as clearly as possible you have these non-member fee payers who were paying agency fees in 22 states These fees are not trivial. They're set typically at 80 to 90% of membership dues. That's up to $1,000 or so per teacher who's being charged them. So there's the immediate loss of any revenues that unions receive from agency fees themselves. But I think the prospect that really worried the unions was the possibility that a lot of members would decide now that they have this no fee option, Uh, to opt out of membership altogether. And that, as I read your article, is what really hasn't happened yet, that membership hasn't fallen very much. There has been some loss of agency fee revenue that has impacted the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers, the two national unions that represent teachers. But so far, membership isn't in free fall. Is that the case?
1: I think that's an accurate description of uh, both what we argue and, you know, what the available data uh, show, which is to say that unions did, uh, teachers unions did take an immediate financial hit as a result of the decision. In most of the big states, uh, New York, California, elsewhere, over 90% of uh, teachers belong to Either the AF, an AFT or NEA affiliate, which meant that uh, somewhere between 10 and 2 percent were these in this category of agency fee payers—people who were not members of the union but still paid the fees. Nonetheless, as you suggest, because agency fees were set at almost 100 percent of dues in some cases, that, that that meant that you're losing between two and, say, 10 percent of revenues just immediately as a consequence of the decision. So that was the first financial hit. Going forward, many people thought, well, because teachers uh, could receive the representational services of the unions without paying either the agency fee or union dues, many would opt out and then um, not pay it, but still receive the union's representational services. That so far uh, has not happened. Uh, There's a bit of variation across the country depending on the state and the jurisdiction, but so far those uh, opt-out um, or you could say people be opting out of the union and seeing its membership numbers fall has not occurred.
0: Now, one of the things I learned from your piece was that state legislatures in most of these 22 affected states responded by adopting various new laws designed to help unions maintain their organizational strength. And if you think about it, that makes sense since presumably those states had the laws they wanted on the books before the decision so they would find ways to try to avoid the decision's impact. Tell us about these new laws. Well,
1: that was, again, I think it's very hard to come up with a precise explanation for why membership has not declined or why there hasn't been opt-out. There could be lots of factors or things going on, but one is clearly what you mentioned, the response of most of the large or strongest union states, New York, California, uh, Illinois, elsewhere, that adopted a set of laws that make it much easier uh, for unions to hold on to their existing membership and to build membership in the future. So a couple of ways that these laws do that is that they allow specific times of year when you can opt out of the union, often uh, tied to the time that a, um, a teacher say became was hired or became a union member and only during a two-week window around that date could they opt out or so that's that's holding people in and another way is to bring in new members so as new teachers are hired um, the say in the under New York's law the union has up to an hour on work time to meet with privately and um, the new employee to encourage them to sign the union card to become a union member. Um, whereas, so that's giving them an, a a powerful legal right laws. Some of these laws allow for sharing of, um, the private contact information, home addresses, phone numbers, emails with the union that requires it in New Jersey. It even is illegal for management to make an, uh, to argue against union membership that could be seen as a violation. So, each of these kind of laws is meant to both help the unions recruit on the front end and then retain the membership that they have at the back end.
0: Now, Rebecca Friedrichs, who was the plaintiff in a similar case in 2016 that the Supreme Court heard challenging agency fees, she's a teacher, she submitted an amicus brief in Janus arguing that the Supreme Court should actually go further than it eventually did and make it clear that the types of laws that you mentioned making it difficult for teachers to revoke their membership, for example, are themselves unconstitutional under exactly the same logic of compelling political speech. The Supreme Court decided not to do that in the Janus case. It followed its habit of sticking to the specific issue raised in the case before it, but it does raise the question are these new laws themselves vulnerable to the legal challenge?
1: Well, I think there's going to be ongoing litigation about many of these provisions. And in fact, there already are a number of cases um, challenging, especially the opt-out provisions. Um, that is tying them to the, a certain time period, because that's seen as then forcing a kind of association uh, or financial commitment over a longer period. Um, so there's already litigation on exactly those questions. And other litigation sort of trying to extend the logic of Janus, which has been petitioned to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has not decided to hear it, but a, a couple of different cases which challenge the idea of what's called exclusive representation, that once a union is in effect, it represents all workers in a given jurisdiction, um, which then prevents, say, groups of workers or individuals from negotiating directly with management. So. Uh, that logic of exclusive representation sort of builds on this idea of forcing people to become part of or be represented by uh, an organization with which they disagree. Um, So a number of cases have even gone to challenging that uh, say core doctrine of U S labor relations.
0: Now, the other development that we've seen since the Janus decision in 2018 uh, actually predating it a, a bit as well and prior to the current strife around reopening schools in the pandemic was just an uptick in strikes walkouts labor actions nationally so this started with statewide walkouts in several states in the spring of 2018 you had high profile strikes in cities like los angeles seattle denver Um, do you see this activity as a byproduct of janice as well
1: I think it really depends on the jurisdiction. You could say there were, uh, in over the course of 2018 and 2019, there were, as you mentioned, you know, sort of two big waves of strikes. The first one was what was often called the red state strikes because they occurred in states such as Arizona that tended to, uh, lean Republican or be strongly Republican States where unions, um, and teachers unions had fewer legal uh, rights to begin with. And, those commanded a great deal of public sympathy the uh, the walkouts by the teachers in those states tended to uh, win large concessions from politicians including pay raises sticking with the arizona example um, from the governor going forward and then there was a second wave which occurred and you could say in blue cities most notably chicago and um, los angeles where you had a long history of you know very strong and militant teachers unions um, Overall, I think public opinion was very favorable and on the side of the teachers unions during this period. Um, So, and some people have interpreted, I think, the blue state strikes, especially Chicago and Los Angeles, as partly strategies for retaining membership and showing their relevance um, to, you know, everyday working teachers, uh, because in order to call a strike, you have to, as we were talking about in the New York case, you have to sort of enlist and have uh, votes by all teachers on whether to authorize a strike. That sort of brings everybody into the fold and into the debate about union strategy. And that is a sort of acts as an organizing mechanism. And that sort of showed the relevance of the union and so on. I think that was less the case with the red state strikes, but certainly Chicago and Los Angeles could be seen in the light you suggest.
0: So unions are trying to find new ways to demonstrate their value to members who now have greater flexibility when it comes to the financial commitment that they're going to make to supporting the union's work. That's the dynamic that seems to be relevant for trying to anticipate what's going to happen uh, to teacher unions going forward. So that's the question we should close with, which is what does the future hold? What will... Teacher unions look like as organizations in ten years, and how will that affect the politics of American education? You
1: know we, in the in the article, we looked at a number of, to try to get a to grapple with exactly that question of what the future might hold. We looked at a number of states that had previously passed right to work laws, which a right to work law, in effect, makes agency fees or fair share fees illegal. Uh, in a in a sense, having the same effect as the Janus decision. We tried to look at what happened in those states over time. I think the broad conclusion one can draw from looking at a basket of states that did that was that these things take a lot of time. There is some membership attrition over time, but it's a very slow process. Um, In part, it can seem almost generational as older teachers who um, have longer attachments to the union have just been paying their union dues for 15 or 20 years, and they're not thinking about um, ever withdrawing from the union, Uh, as as that generation passes and younger, newer teachers come on the scene, uh, there is some decline in membership. So I think that the position of the teachers' unions in most of the big, strong union states is one where they're trying to just hold their position and fight off this sort of slow attrition uh, of membership, but that doesn't mean that all of a sudden California is going to go from, you know, over 90% of its teachers belonging to usually an NEA affiliate in California to all of a sudden 60%. Um, that, that's not the realistic expectation. We probably think of uh, declines over the next decade or more of perhaps, uh, you know, somewhere between five and 10%, um, going from say 90% Um, to 80. That would be a big drop, um, but it's not going to be, you know, really a sharp free fall. And that's going to mean that teachers unions are going to be remain important and powerful players in education policy um, for most public schools throughout the country.
0: And a lot of that, I guess, depends on the actions that states subsequently take, which again is the really focal point of the new information provided in your article. The comparator states that you just mentioned, those that adopted right to work laws voluntarily over the past decade or so, they presumably were trying to weaken unions as organizations. They didn't then offset their own work by adopting the series of provisions you described earlier, trying to mute the change's impact. And so it suggests to me that, absent a Supreme Court decision saying that these strategies that states have adopted are themselves unconstitutional that blue states that feel good about strengthening public sector unions will continue to find ways to do so but we might see even more variation than there is now in strong union states and weak union states blue states and red states in the strength of unions as organizations does that logic make sense
1: I think that logic makes a lot of sense and captures uh, what we try to show in the article. And I would add one more point to that, which is under the older pre-Janus regime, the national federations, because all local unions build up from you know local unions to the state level to, to a national level. is. What my colleague Michael Hartney has uh, been able to show in recent research was they were able to take many of those revenues from the stronger union states and plug them into weaker union states where the unions there enjoyed um, fewer legal rights, and that in a sense kind of smoothed the variation um, in union strength across the country, um, as the national federation could intervene if um, the teachers unions in in a certain a state were under assault, uh, in their view, that will no longer really be as possible as going forward because of the constrictions on union revenue imposed by the Janus decision. So that will mean that there's going to be much more variation between strong union and weaker union states.
0: One of the challenges of learning about the effects of teachers' unions and their strength is that there has been little variation to study, uh, that the system has essentially been in equilibrium for a long time. As a researcher, I guess one of the things that I look forward to in this new era is the ability to try and develop some stronger evidence to understand what the consequences of union strength actually are.
1: Yeah, I think that's going to be um, a big challenge for researchers going forward. But, uh, you know, I commend any uh, young graduate students who want to take up this uh, question and uh, use the comparative uh, leverage that our uh, American federal system offers.
0: My guest today has been Dan DeSalvo, co-author of Teacher Unions in a Post-Janus World. Dan, thanks for being part of the podcast. My pleasure. You've been listening to the EdNext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.